0: Hello and welcome. I'm Terry Patar. I run the Jane's Intelligence Unit and today on the podcast I'm joined by Professor John Ferris who has written the authorised history of GCHQ and it's called Behind the Enigma. It'll be great John to talk to you about your uh, work that's gone into this and, and how you went about producing it as well as some of the insights that we can draw from reading the, about the history of GCHQ which is certainly one of the leading uh, organisations out there especially when it comes to signals intelligence of course. But firstly John it would be good to get a. Nice- idea of some of your background as well and how you came to find yourself writing the authorised history of GCHQ.
1: Well, it's partly a matter of fluke and partly hard work. As a graduate student in 1979, I started working on British strategic policy after the First World War. And completely by accident, I was working in the area where the British hadn't weeded out any references to SIGINT. Up until 19 between 1918 and 1923, there was still a fair amount of material on the archives, and I was working in areas where, by coincidence, the SIGINT record was fairly thick. And this was a time when nobody believed you could actually say anything about SIGINT. They thought that the records weren't there. And I got frustrated with people telling me I couldn't be seeing what I was seeing. And so I decided to start systematically looking for the material, and I did. And once I had the material, I then had to understand what it was, although the policy side came naturally to me, learning how codes are made and broken and learning how radio worked with things I knew nothing about. And so I educated myself, which in the pre-internet days was really hard. You had to go to specialist libraries like the one in the Imperial War Museum and look for very specialist books. And then I started to write. And when I started to write, I gained an audience in the SIGINT communities. In the Five Eyes, in the sense that anyone who was interested in the history of SIGINT said, this Ferris guy knows what he's talking about. And from that, eventually, I ended up building contacts among American and British SIGINTers. And finally, when GCHQ decided about eight years ago that it was going to allow an authorized history to be written, I was, I think, the obvious candidate in technical terms. And since as a Canadian, I'm from a Five Eyes country, that made it possible for Britain to allow me to write the history. If I'd been French or German, it would not have been
0: possible. And you're currently based at the University of Calgary? Yes. How much did writing the history of this sort of take you away from the the day job, perhaps? Or was it, you know, did it overlap, I guess? Because you have obviously written a lot in the past on intelligence issues, etc. Was there a natural sort of connection there, I guess, in terms of the work you'd done in, in the past?
1: Well, the answer is I'd done most of the research that I use in the book, before 1945 already, but GCHQ bought out my time from the University of Calgary for three years, in fact, and I spent that time going through the material they allowed me to see after 1945, in other words, the stuff that was still classified, and then writing it up, and it's really only, I'd say, in the past few months that I've finally gotten away from writing, et cetera, and now I'm into the broadcasting, public.
0: Uh-huh. By the time this goes on online, the book will be available uh, yes. for everyone. And um, so it's just it is literally sort of fresh off the press. Um, exactly. What what I found really fascinating as I was going through it, looking at the, at the structure of it particularly, was quite how much you'd managed to cover, actually, in, in sort of one volume, which you mentioned there, the pre-1945 period and the history. And, you know, then you've covered issues like the Cold War, obviously, the more modern yes. era, the post-Cold War era. Uh, the recent sort of age of I guess the the, the information internet etc that the GCHQs had to cope with which brought it bang up to date but also within it you've covered issues like who works at GCHQ the types of people that work there the sort of sociological aspects and and issues like diversity which are very very current and very topical in terms of you know how the organization that organization in particular but other organizations are thinking about their workforce and planning for the future, et cetera, and having the right skills and experience. How did you go about deciding what to put in and what not to put in? Because there's a wealth of material in here. And, and like I said, there's almost two or three or maybe even more books uh, that you could have potentially written from all of this material. I
1: could have done focused on certain areas more than I did. But originally when GCHQ and I hammered out what I'd be able to see and not, Correctly, they did not want me to be talking about anything that has current technical applications. There are a lot of things that occur in the mid-Cold War and the late Cold War that are still live, technically speaking, odd as that may sound. They didn't want me to talk about diplomatic code breaking after 1945 for political reasons, and again, I didn't mind. Every agency that worked with GCHQ has what they call equities. In other words, if my account was going to refer to, say, the NSA or refer to MI5, well, NSA and MI5 both had the right to go over what I'd written and to remove things. And lots of agencies just wanted to be removed purely and simply, even if I said really good things about them, which very often I did. They did not want to be mentioned. The book couldn't have been written had NSA not been extremely cooperative, because GCHQ and NSA are really closely linked. And it's true to say that in many cases, in an operation, it's impossible to say whether the British stop and the Americans start, or vice versa. But NSA was quite cooperative. There were things they insisted come out, but they were all issues, which I'd agreed at from the start shouldn't be included. The things which grew in the telling were that originally I wasn't supposed to say much about code breaking after 1945, but the code breakers wanted to be mentioned for good reason, because actually GCHQ is one of the very top code breaking agencies. Um, They think of themselves as being number one in the world. And certainly from what I've seen from American views, the Americans regard GCHQ with great respect in that field. And so the Codebreakers gave me some access to who they are. And in fact, I'm actually very happy with my ability to discuss what they're like. They're a very interesting group, of course. The other thing that expanded was after the Cold War. Initially, the idea was that, well, I'd get to the Cold War and then I'd write like 5,000 words. But as time went by, and I think GCHQ became more accustomed to what I was doing they were willing to go further into after 1992 than they had originally intended. And since the National Cybersecurity Center is such an important part now of what GCHQ does, and indeed an important part of the British government, in essence, I was given enough material to be able to go through the rise of the Internet, the rise of what I call the Second Age of SIGINT, and then to provide a basic outline of what NCSC and GCHQ do today. But most of that was based on open sources. Fortunately, for what it's worth, the open sources on things after 1992 are really amazing. When I began in this profession, it was very difficult to find anything in open sources about SIGINT. Now, if you dig around, look at leaks, look at things that people have released officially, it's much easier now to tell the story of SIGINT in the past 20 years. But it was for me, let's say in 1985, to tell the story of SIGINT and the First World War. That's how much more material is out in the public domain.
0: What sort of, in some ways, kind of surprised me a little bit, because I wasn't that familiar with the, certainly the pre 1945 history of, uh, you know, you touched upon code breaking there, and that's really how. The capability, at least within the UK, started out. And um, what caught my eye, because you know the, our focus at Jane's is open source intelligence, and, and the okay. audience for this podcast is particularly interested in open source intelligence, which you t- you mentioned there in terms of post 1992. But even in the, you mentioned at one point early in the book, in terms of the Victorian era, how there was a stage at which open source information became more valuable, and you started to see a lessened, uh, I guess, emphasis on on the sort of sigint, etc. And it really struck me that had, that in some ways had a parallel to the modern era that we're currently going through, where we're yes. suddenly seeing this increase in value applied to open source information. Was that something that struck you as well that, you know, you would you wanted to draw out in terms of some of the history of the organization?
1: I think nowadays I'm really an intelligence historian more than anything else. But if I'm dealing with intelligence, I have to understand information and information history is actually a specific subgenre of history which looks at how open sources are gathered and above all else, how they're processed and indexed. And in fact, if you look at the Victorian era, the rise of mass literacy, the Telegraph, um, parcel post or normal post newspapers, suddenly you have the, the ability to acquire far more material than you, anyone has ever done before. And the problem that emerges for businesses or governments is how do you process this stuff? And one of the things that I've found working in, in my field is that military agencies and SIGINT agencies in particular are amazingly good at figuring out how to process huge amounts of information and winnow them down to a manageable size. So in fact, you know, there's an, an argument that the, the telegraph is the Victorian internet, and I have a lot of sympathy for that. I think it's only in the past few years that the internet has really superseded the telegraph as a revolutionary factor in making information available to people. But there's no doubt that today, open source information offers far more material than it's ever done before. And knowing how to process it and make it available is more valuable than ever before. At the same moment, SIGINT is also more valuable than it's ever been before. So it's not as though the two sources are mutually exclusive. In fact, any rational government would combine both.
0: Certainly, I think from what we what we do see, it needs resourcing and it needs for countries, for countries like the UK to keep that capability going is vital. You know, it it spends so much time and effort. And you see in the book, especially the history and the development of GCHQ, uh, you know, how much has gone into it that um, and so how much can spin out of it as well. So you mentioned there in terms of managing information, which is something that, In the past might have been limited in some ways to probably an audience like intelligence agencies, etc. But now those kinds of skills and capabilities apply to so many areas of life in terms of other sectors where if you've got that background or that experience in working out how to manage those large quantities of information, and it can be open source information, any kind of information, really. Um, it's such a valuable, a valuable skill and understanding to have. So yeah, I think I think that's that there's a lot to be taken out of understanding how these kinds of agencies have worked and operated. But what I liked was that you sort of you described as well in there that, that some of the process that went into creating it and and walking into the donut and and you know seeing where some of the the old boxes of files were etc. And um and so it gives a really sort of it gives a little peek behind the scenes, but um, I mean, obviously this has been authorised by the organisation as well, and you know, to what extent I've got to ask, obviously, to what extent is it part of a you know, part of marketing for for GCHQ, or, or were you able to really look at them with a critical eye?
1: Whatever I was allowed to see, I was allowed to write whatever I wanted, and GCHQ in fact made no effort to censor anything I had to say. On occasion, the people I worked with quite correctly would question my arguments and we would debate. And because I was on very good terms with them, very often I'd change my mind or at least nuances would adjust what I'd said. Now, the, the other agencies I'm talking about with equities did, in fact, have the ability to pull themselves out of the story. GCHQ never did. But, of course, GCHQ is authorizing this book for a lot of reasons. One of them is the fact that the centenary of the foundation of GCHQ is, is this year. And the second is that GCHQ, by about 2005, six was beginning to open itself up far more than ever before to academics, journalists, businessmen. It was a very select group. But nonetheless, they were increasingly open, and they realized they were going to have to be more open. But the Snowden leaks, really, from GCHQ's point of view, created a temporary crisis in the sense that GCHQ had no idea what was going to be released, no idea what had been purloined, a lot of which actually were uh, originally GCHQ products that NSA had that Snowden yeah. was given access, somehow had access to because of the incompetence, I must say, of NSA and these issues. Um, now, as it turned out, from GCHQ's point of view, the Snowden disclosures weren't that damaging, because in fact, everything they'd done, they had had been authorized to do by proper government authorities. And also, they'd informed the Parliamentary Committee on Intelligence. So in fact, they came through the process without suffering any damage. And the long debate in the British press ultimately ended up, I think, with the British public thinking, well, it's good to know that we have an agency that's protecting us. I mean, you'll notice even that today, even The Guardian, for example, is generally supportive of GCHQ, which is certainly the first time in my history of reading (laughs) The Guardian. But from GCHQ's point of view, they concluded that they could not hope to function if there wasn't a greater degree of public knowledge of and consent for what they did. Finally, with the NCSC, GCHQ was coming in the open. I mean, basically... The National Cybersecurity Center is an open agency whose task is to help the British public and British firms. Its, Its consumer is the British people, bizarrely enough. So you have this extraordinarily secret organization in the form of GCHQ with a major branch, NCSC, actually being public all the time. I'm actually astounded, frankly. When I see the number of public statements being made by NCSC officials to the British public, um, what you know in the Cold War, GCHQ contributed to JIC the Joint Intelligence Committee yeah. um, reports intended for the military, the Foreign Office, and also defense intelligence um, reports in the same way. So its consumers were all officials. Nowadays, one event of G main consumers are the public and so from their point of view the concatenation of all of these things drove them to say it would be important to have a clear independent account of our history now i'm critical of them in lots of different ways in particular a lot of gchq's cache i think lies in the fact that the british public overestimates how much intelligence helped in the second world war and i as a military historian by training, cut that down to size in the sense of saying, yes, of course, GCHQ was actually far and away the best code-breaking agency in the world. But nonetheless, intelligence doesn't win a war on its own. And if Britain hadn't been a strong and powerful state with strong and powerful allies, that intelligence would not have been as useful as it was. And I also do things, I mean, there's, for example, a color bar in... GCHQ, as there is in every British defense and intelligence agency in the 50s and 60s, and so I brought the evidence out. So there are a lot anywhere I see reason to be critical, I am. But by and large, I have to say, I know as an historian, I've worked in all the records of dozens of intelligence and strategic agencies, and GCHQ is professionally the best of them all. I really, in the end, was quite impressed by their quality. And the fact that they've been able to pass that quality on generation after generation, which is not easy for an institution to do,
0: that's yeah, that is quite remarkable. Um, and especially hearing that from yourself in terms of the work that you've done with other intelligence agencies and being able to make that comparison, because not many people probably have that comparative experience. So, yeah, that is that, that is certainly interesting. I think it shows also a lot the long way that GCHQ has come over the past few decades. Um, and you know they've obviously more recently had to deal with this challenge of the the information age that we're in and everything that's, that's sort of grown up around that. And the and you talked there about the public perception and how that's shifted to being more positive um, following you know the issues around the leaks etc. In in what way do you think that though that they've they've managed or how well really have they managed to balance that need to keep the public on side? whilst also doing the work that they need to do within the in open information environment that we're in now, where there's so much data out there that they, you know, I think they describe as of being able to gather together the haystack before you can go looking for the needles, etc. cetera. So, um, yeah, how, how well do you think they've managed with that?
1: I Actually, I think GCHQ has done pretty well, bearing in mind that it shares techniques with the other five eyes, especially the Americans. So some of the techniques that that GCHQ uses initially are American. But actually, GCHQ, from what I can see, has maintained quite a significant position in terms of developing techniques to collect or, above all else, to manage the flow of of information that you receive. I mean, the real dilemma is that there is so much material for SIGINT agency to intercept, which it can legitimately intercept, that you can't collect at all, period. Given the way the Internet works, the old legal rules which define what material SIGINT, say GCHQ, could collect or couldn't collect don't, don't work any longer. In the Cold War, the theory was GCHQ did not collect communications from one British person to another unless there was a specific legal warrant. And that would usually be executed by MI5 anyway. Um, but GCHQ was free to intercept any traffic outside of Britain. And what it normally did was focus on high frequency radio traffic used by the Warsaw Pact. That was like 70% of GCHQ's effort in the Cold War. And so it was easy to distinguish what traffic you wanted and what traffic you didn't want. But once HF goes away, And once you move toward a world where communication is conducted essentially over telephone lines and fiber optic lines, but also uh, some forms of satellite communication, using the Internet, suddenly you're in a very different world. There's far more communications to pick up than ever before. You can't actually identify until you touch it whether you're dealing with a communication between one Brit or another or whether you're dealing with a communication between, say, a Soviet intelligence agency and some operatives abroad. You literally can't know until you touch it. On top of that, there's so much material to collect, you can't actually process it. As a senior figure at GCHQ told me, and I use the metaphor myself, if you imagine that all the communications in the world are a billiard table, then the amount of material that you can actually collect is like a beer mat and the amount of material that you could actually in any meaningful way try to analyze is like a full stop and that happens every day so simply being able to determine which parts of the billiard table you're going to be looking at and which full stops you're going to be looking at really is a high very problematical issue now that's one reason why the paranoia you sometimes get from people saying oh you know we've got big brother really doesn't work. There's far too much material for GCHQ to spend looking at people like you or I. From their point of view, we're irrelevant. What they want is traditional state to state traffic. Um, So for example, if you go through the Mueller investigation a couple of years ago, I think about two years ago, they released a transcript of the intelligence collected by an, an unknown Five Eyes agency, but in fact, I'm pretty sure GCHQ, where essentially GCHQ was within Russian military intelligence, GRU's communication networks, doing a keystroke by keystroke log of attempts by GRU to conduct some of its manipulation of the American election. Now, I mean, you can't get much better than that, frankly. But beyond that, you're dealing with terrorism. And terrorism is just a disaster to deal with, technically speaking, in the sense that unless you know who you're looking for, then the targets are really amorphous. It's really hard to find new targets. If you know what you're looking for, then you know the, the line about you need a haystack to find a needle does become true. If you know who you're looking for, then it's a very simple matter of determining what their IP address is, then looking around to see who they communicate with. And you can start to build a very sophisticated net of communications that can allow you very rapidly to reconstruct the milieu, I suppose you might use, of a given terrorist. But nonetheless, finding new threats is very hard to do. So there are lots of massive technical complexities, overwhelming amounts of material, and real problems in determining some of the targets you're you're trying to find. And of course, when you're dealing with terrorism, any failure automatically has a terrible public result, not just in the fact that people die, but in the fact that people get frightened and hysterical. Yeah.
0: And therefore Which is, which is what they're don't. aiming to do. Well,
1: of course. We're letting them win when that happens, unfortunately.
0: Mm. And in terms of what you described there, the the processes that they've had to adapt to, to what extent have they also had to adapt to a new type of competitor? Because as there's more information available, the barrier to, it strikes me that the barrier to entry for SIGIN is, is is that much lower and you talked about yeah the ncsc and how they um are there to protect the british public the uk public and um that strikes me as being in certainly the recent history of gchq one of the biggest developments in terms of coming out into the public and actually taking on that role and is that has that really been driven by the level of competition that's out there now and, and the level of threat i suppose that they're having to deal with Well, SIGINT agencies
1: mirror their targets, by which I mean you have, in order to attack your target, you have to be like your target. And so GCHQ in the Cold War was highly militarized because its target was Warsaw Pact military, period. (laughs) Highly compartmentalized. You had all of these little offices that didn't need to communicate directly with each other, a very Byzantine structure, which nonetheless produced the product very well. Um, Once you're dealing with our current environment where you still have old military targets, but you also have lots of diplomatic targets, which you always did, but you now have this new target of cyber criminals, cyber intelligence, and terrorists, then you have to become a different organization. And one of the dilemmas, as you say, the entry cost for SIGINT is now very, very low. My own guess, and this is purely my Yes, is that there are millions of entities in the world that can conduct some form of SIGINT. I mean, basically, each one of us is a target for SIGINT as an individual. Any cyber criminal who's doing phishing is in a way involved in a form of SIGINT. And cyber criminals are the real problem for most of us, frankly. Um, Mm -hmm. Cyber intelligence is a major problem for states, And the overlap between cyber criminal groups and groups which are involved in in cyber intelligence is often very, very powerful. So Russian and Chinese non-governmental secret organizations, nonetheless, are still to some degree working with the state. Now, the dilemma for Britain, as for any advanced state, is that your economy can be in serious jeopardy if cyber criminals or cyber intelligence combined with cyber criminals starts to operate against you. And you just think about these poor old pensioners who potentially are going to find their life savings pilfered by cyber criminals. So in fact there's a from a point of view of a sovereign state, if you do not have a public means to defend your population against that kind of threat, you're failing in your very basic duties. Now, the the Singaporeans and the Israelis were the first to start to move in these areas. But about a decade or so ago, slightly earlier than that, GCHQ started to move in that direction. And that was driven in part by the fact that a lot of younger cybersecurity people who joined GCHQ were unhappy with the way the organization worked. And so ultimately, the decision was made that you would create what becomes the NCSC to be an open organization, but with its roots within this highly secret organization, which would attempt to deal with the cyber environment. And I'd say that the NCSC is, from what I can see, extremely good. And it's become conceivable. It's certainly the most dynamic and growing portion of GCHQ, and it may well Ultimately, become the most important part of it.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting thought, actually, in terms of the future of the organization. I mean, one, one one element of the book you mentioned which stuck out to me was a point at which you were describing over the last 30 years how GCHQ, especially during the 90s, um, reoriented itself and transformed to meet the, the change in threat out after the Cold War. And you talked about the culture of the organization and how it um, ignored theories of the information age. and focused on things that were operationally relevant, things that actually, where they could have an impact. That was really interesting. I thought maybe it would be great to get a little bit more from you on that. Maybe you could unpack that a little bit in terms of what you found and, and what you, and maybe from your experience of doing the research and interacting with the organisation, what you found of the organisational culture um, and how that facilitated its digital transformation, really, into the sort of modern era.
1: Now, my experience... I was in a university of Calgary in the 1990s that went through a so-called process of transformation that never worked. And I witnessed the American military going through processes of transforma- transformation, the revolution of military affairs in particular, that didn't work either. It was all crap. People tried to follow theoretical models. Whereas with GCHQ, what you have is at the end of the Cold War, this very militarized civilian body, more militarized than it had ever been before, very much like a civil service organization. It's used to producing and pushing out industrial-scale volumes of product, especially to military consumers. But they can sense that something is is happening with the Internet, even though the old hands have no idea what it is, and partly through the accident of personalities, but also partly because of the fact that GCHQ – in the course of, since 1945, whenever the government has thought seriously about what GCHQ has done, it's brought in an outside figure, whether it's an air marshal or you know a Don, or in this particular case, a British industrialist, um, to look at the organization and offer critical comments. And the end result was that in the early 1990s, Um, Roger Hearn, who was a very well-known industrialist, and at that time I think one of the leaders in IT in Britain, um, made significant recommendations about how the organization should change. Whitehall was willing to go along with it, and even more important, Whitehall was willing not to take a peace dividend from GCHQ. It takes a big peace dividend from every other defense organization, but most of what happens with GCHQ's budget works in its favor. And essentially, the organization is told to change, and it changes through the internal processes, which were always there, Um, consensual decision-making, long, long discussions about what should happen. These are brick people. GCHQ can turn on a dime, and one of the things that strikes me historically is that if a crisis happens, GCHQ responds immediately, much faster than any other organization I have ever dealt with. But on the other hand, if they don't have a crisis, they can end up spending a huge amount of time uh, debating about how many angels are on the head of a pin. But in this particular <laughs> case, GCHQ people were willing to be transformed. Their leadership was willing to transform them, and in which outside managers essentially ultimately took the top third of GCHQ personnel through a what you might call a consciousness-changing. Process where they had to meet each other, where they had to talk about what they did, where they had to consider why they did what they did, when they've had to think critically about what kind of people they were. So, you know, the Meyer-Briggs formula, formula, which is often used to, you know, differentiate people into different sorts of patterns, was applied to each one of them. They all had to think about it. And although you can argue that Meyer-Briggs is arbitrary, nonetheless, it does make you think. And my experience of talking to people who went through GCHQ, went through this process, is that all of them thought it had actually really caused them to rethink what they did and to change the way they worked. At the same time, they also came to terms with how SIGINT worked on the Internet faster than anyone else. So they were the first SIGINT agency to really come to terms with how the Internet worked. NSA was slower, although when NSA started... Trust me, NSA is an extremely fast-moving organization when it decides to do things. Now, nowadays, my own sense is that when I walk through GCHQ, it's like walking through a university. It's really got that kind of atmosphere. When I walk through NSA, it's like walking through a military academy, and I'm not being critical. These military academies are really important if you're trying to prepare people for certain kinds of things. But GCHQ is more freewheeling creative agile, and the people who work there are all intelligent hmm. um the level of intelligence among gchq people certainly matches that of any university i've ever been attached to in britain or canada
0: there's a few points i wanted to pick up on there in terms of you mentioned how they went through this conscious process of determining how to reorganize in the 90s and and that was one of the things that i i i was reading the book and and hadn't known before and and was really intrigued by was this process of getting buy-in from the senior leadership and all people at that level in their careers where they could or they they probably did expect they would go on to the next level or whatever and get promoted but they, they they almost all sort of consciously accepted that they would sort of stop there and they would allow the organization to reorient itself almost pivoting around them as a generation and and become something different and that's quite remarkable in many ways, I think. And it says a lot about the quality of the people and, like you said, and and that process they went through. And, you know, as much as Maya Briggs might be um, at the time probably was uh, more relied upon, whereas, you know, the, you could debate obviously the usefulness of it. But as you said, it's the process that it goes through, that it takes people through, which is um, really helpful, I think, in those organizational contexts. And I think that's that's an insight that – I don't think anyone else looking outside into the organization would have understood that it was going through even, you know, at the time.
1: It wasn't apparent to anyone who wasn't on the inside. Mm. Um, So far as I know, I'm the first civilian to have been informed about the, the things I'm talking about here. There may well have been some civil civilian officials who knew about it, but this is the first time that anyone, had access to that material so the book is is bringing out in this case something new mm. which I found very interesting myself and indeed I spoke to I spoke at length to through interviews with a lot of senior GCHQ people and lots of junior ones and the thing that struck me is the uniformity of their enthusiasm they all thought that it had been a good thing now the other point is that because GCHQ for the decade of the 90s in the early 2000s, Still had very good reason to use people with traditional skills and orientation they could continue their career with dignity and in a sense, it did mean that the people who were who had imagined that they'd become a director had to say well that's not going to happen and there weren't i mean basically there were two or three people who would have been candidates for a directorship who in fact lost out because in effect what occurs is the g c h q goes through a oh about a seven year period where its directors are all appointed from outside. And then it reverts back to its old habits. And nowadays, the directorship is a major plum in Whitehall, and it is competed for by people across Whitehall. And for what it's worth, there are young people in GCHQ who wonder whether they'll ever have a chance to be director. So Mm -hmm. what it points to is that GCHQ has become a national resource and therefore it it is regarded as being as significant as say any of the military services as significant conceivably even as the foreign office i doubt that but i would certainly say that it would be seen as being significant as being head of the army right it's in that kind of league it's not it is much different from the other intelligence agencies
0: yeah no indeed and what you also touched upon there was not just the, the cultural change it went through, but um, the, the role it played in, ter- in relation to the military. And you talked about the peace dividend and not, it not getting its budget cut. Um, it struck me, especially reading through some of the history of previous decades of uh, GCHQ's development, that actually it almost plays a more important role in peacetime than it does when there's a, an active war or conflict. Is that what you found as well, or is that has that changed? I guess in in in, it, in the course of its history, is it now as you mentioned there? Because it is much more agile now; it can pivot, it can respond to crises, etc. Is it now relevant all the time, or as relevant all the time? I suppose, or, or you know, whereas in the past maybe it was more relevant during peacetime.
1: Okay, for what it's worth, British Sign emerges in the First World War, and its, its role is to help fight a war, which also means conduct effective diplomacy in a war. After the, F- the First World War is over, British SIGINT has two different parts. One essentially is maintaining the capability to fight a war with SIGINT, which the British do in qualitative terms, although they don't have a large enough body. Um, they also maintain a permanent diplomatic code-breaking agency, which would have been called a black chamber, say, in the 18th century. And that's the main task for GC's, GCHQ's predecessor. And on a daily basis, communications intelligence really helps diplomacy. And that's also true in the Cold War, although I wasn't allowed to look at the records on diplomacy in the Cold War, which is fun. Um During the Cold War, there's no question at all that, especially when you're dealing with the Warsaw Pact, GCHQ provides a major daily ability to answer the really important question, which which is, is World War III going to break out today or tomorrow? And essentially what GCHQ can do, along with NSA, and for that matter along with all of the five Eyes, is to monitor the other side and say things are normal. Um, It provides a real sense of security that you know what isn't going to happen in the short term. Did that also you can respond effectively to crises and when wars occur as they do for britain during the withdrawal from empire all the way to the Falklands, sigint is very helpful and in fact I, my argument is that without sigint the british would not have won the Falklands conflict period i was astonished when i went through the records and i'm a military historian i hadn't realized just how close run a thing the Falklands conflict was especially at sea i mean really in the end when you look at what the task force is doing. It's a really dicey proposition. And without SIGINT, it wouldn't have been possible. SIGINT is as as valuable in the Falklands conflict as it was at any time in the Second World War. But when you get to today, there's no question that British diplomacy is backed constantly by SIGINT. It's kept hidden, of course, and it should be. But it's there in very big proportions. The new thing is that there is now an active level of state to state threat or society to society threat in terms of the cyber struggle, whether it's cyber criminals or other states. And GCHQ is, in effect, a fighting service on that level. It is, met, if you like, manning the borders of cyberspace for Britain. And I had a, a line that came to mind that I used that, you know, in the the age of the British Empire, the Khyber Rifles were an important part of British defense, and now it's the Cyber Rifles. (laughs) And there's a certain point to that. They Mm -hmm. are a fighting service as well as an intelligence service. So they're doing things on a daily basis, and since so much of the future of military force is linked to cyber, well, GCHQ in fact is in the boom area of the military side of the equation as well. So it It may well be that in 20 years, the role of cyber will be seen as being very different than it is now. I am convinced that in the 1990s, when you move away from primarily state-to-state high-frequency radio work to one focused on society-to-society and the Internet, that we enter a very different age of SIGINT, which I call the second age of SIGINT, where we are far from through all of the possible developments, and the only thing I can say is the role of SIGINT and cyber intelligence has been expanding constantly, often in ways which I find personally very distressing and depressing.
0: Firstly, I, lo- I love the phrase that you-, you gave there in terms of manning the borders of cyberspace, and I think I can I can already um, see that slogan, uh, I can envisage it turning up on things like lanyards of members yep. of staff, and you know that's something that yeah they should certainly be proud of that and but um but as you said it is as the modern age has developed and as the information age has developed the kinds of threats that are out there and the pervasiveness of those threats whether it, it whether we're technically you know in peacetime or or at war with somebody that distinction seems to have now blurred and um and and yeah like you said it, it is slightly more disturbing now for everybody um, so do you, do you feel that we should be reassured? I mean, the general public should be more reassured. I think, I guess, I guess from what you've said so far, they should be that GCHQ is doing the work that it's doing. And uh, especially through the National Cyber Security Center. Um, but was there was there anything you know that that you, you drew out of your research in particular that you thought helps give us an idea of what is to come next? You know what is the future for GCHQ, and I know that's going to be largely dependent on responding to particular threats and, and how they pivot. But w- what would you say would be would, would the future hold for a second agency like GCHQ? Personally, I believe that we're going to see a continuation of what has
1: happened for the past 15 years. We're going to see. I mean, we now are all members of cyberspace we all live parts of our life in the cyber world we're all vulnerable to that our states operate very much in terms of having access to cyber and working through cyber and so that domain to use the military concept has become and will continue to become more and more important for power struggles as well as what happens to individual people i think that means that the GCHQ is going to continue to rise in relative importance and fund share of funding compared to other British security and intelligence services. Because it is, relatively speaking, very good, it gives Britain a relative advantage um, compared to other states. It makes Britain more alliance-worthy with the Americans than anything else does. I mean G- – British conventional forces have declined enough in capabilities, although possibly with the two aircraft carriers, things may change. Um, It's declined enough in capabilities in the past decade. The GCHQ is the one part of British strategic resources, which really does offer a great deal to the Americans. If you can envisage the five eyes as being a, a collective whole, my sense is that Britain essentially handles the Russians, and the Americans essentially handle the Chinese. And from the point of view of the Americans, knowing that you have an able partner who can protect that important portion of your security is a comforting thought. If GCHQ were suddenly to collapse, the Americans would actually find it very hard in any period less than a decade to make up for what was lost. And finally, the sheer complexity and significance of threats in the cyber domain mean that any rational government is going to increase its investments. For Britain, it's also important that Britons remain confident that GCHQ is not a threat to their own their own liberties. And that's going to mean that maintaining proper legal and political control that are clearly and openly known to work is essential. For what it's worth, my own sense is that it has worked. I would say that I've... Have, not found any instances in my 30 years of work where British SIGINT has been used to conduct what I would be regarded as illegal activities against British civilians, citizens. But you have to keep that sense of trust alive in order for the organization to function effectively. But in fact, to my astonishment, through NCSC, um, it seems to me that the British have gone a long way toward solving that problem and maintaining. That level of trust and competence.
0: One one thing I wanted to ask about was how to what extent that trust or the reputation of the organization was damaged by the Snowden leaks. And, and also on the, on the sort of flip side of that, whether you found any of that leaked information at all useful in writing the book.
1: I read it, but I, I, they didn't want me to refer to it. Yeah. And in fact, it was far too detailed for me to bring in. Mm-hmm. So it shaped my general story. And I might at some future time. Um, write something from it. The agency was frightened that it was going to suffer as a result of Snowden, just Mm. as NSA did. NSA was damaged, partly because it didn't have the level of political support that GCHQ did, and it didn't have the same level of public support. I mean, what struck me going through purely open source material on the British response is that British politicians from all parties made a decision that they would be open and honest about what GCHQ had told them and what they'd authorized. And essentially what they said was everything they did was properly authorized and legal. There were a number of open public investigations done by very credible independent groups, which had in some cases extraordinary access to GCHQ material, which confirmed that GCHQ behaved legally and it's, work was essential to national security and saving British lives against terror. And finally, there's no question that the public groups that wanted to really damage SIGINT, which in many cases were pursuing what I call unilateral digital disarmament, um, lost. They know they lost. If you read the left-wing critics of SIGINT over the past five years, you can see real recognition on their part that they failed to convince the British public. And indeed, from what I can see, and this is confirmed by polling, um, GCHQ has a very high level of trust and respect from the British population. In a sense, the British people look back at the Second World War and say, well, Bletchley saved us then. Um, We confront a world filled with dangers, and we should be grateful that we've got people manning the borders whom we can trust. And so in the end, yes, it came through a very trying time that frightened it. Its leaders really did not know whether they'd be able to be as successful in surmounting that danger as they were. And in fact, NSA has faced far greater problems as a result.
0: It's a reassuring, I suppose, for, for, for the organization, no doubt, to hear you saying that as your conclusions from, from what you've drawn out of, of the research you've done and your observations and I think that, as you said, they've they've obviously done a lot more to help directly with the public and to change their image. And there's always, I think, a challenge in terms of using any kind of leaked information. In that, you know, certainly from the Jane's perspective, it's not something that we tend to, to we would tend to use at all because you're not sure how much you can really trust it or rely on it, and what may be missing, what you know, what you're seeing, what you're not seeing from from those leaks. So it's difficult, I think, but it does change the narrative. It does change, you know, what the public. Are saying about the organization or about the, the operations of, of intelligence, etc. So it's, it's something that's got to be taken into consideration, I think, you know?
1: Well and, I'm speaking personally, I'd say that it's a disaster for the five eyes that Snowden leaked what he leaked. The only people who gained were the Russians, the Chinese and cyber criminals and cyber terrorists. But since the material was released, of course I read everything I could possibly read of it. Mm-hmm. And what it simply goes to show is how cyber intelligence works in the decade before 2013 and what it goes to show is just how good nsa and gchq and other members of the five eyes were at what they did they're actually very very professional i'm quite impressed
0: yeah and i I think i think the real lesson from that in some ways was that it was just how slow it, it legislation can be in keeping up with the technical means of inception etc and and actually what the agencies are capable of doing and how they ca- their capabilities are obviously developing much more rapidly so yeah the, lawmakers are, are definitely behind the curve on these sorts of things
1: they're still behind the curve i mean mm. there, the dichotomy between what law theoretically enables or prevents in every five eyes country and how Sigint actually works is vast and so when I said earlier that GCHQ didn't break any laws, that's partly because the laws <laughs> didn't really exist. Yeah. yeah. But nonetheless, mm-hmm. there's no, mm-hmm. there is no example I know of where GCHQ can be shown to have done something which we would regard as intrinsically illegal.
0: Yeah. Yeah. To change tack slightly, um, I wanted to also ask. You know, you talked about the, the culture of the organisation and how it developed and responded to different threats and, and the agility of the organisation how much of that do you think is actually down to its location and the sort of distance it's had from the rest of whitehall or the other government agencies et cetera, geographically um and, and maybe you know how's that shaped its independence perhaps
1: it's always been a very isolated organisation and governments have been willing to tolerate its isolation and eccentricity being based in cheltenham essentially meant that they were on their own and be, they became a very Cheltonian institution. A very large portion of the recruits were local school leavers from Gloucestershire. Um, but yes, it meant that they could do things as they wished. Very rarely they're made to change the way they operate to suit other organizations. But from what I can see, they are more autonomous than any other organization in the security and intelligence business in britain nsa is a lot of the same independence um, fort meade is only like 20 miles from central dc but to get there you have to spend like an hour on the beltway right and so whereas politicians will go to cia in five minutes you really have to set set aside a day to go to nsa and the end result is that not that many people do it so weirdly enough people in Meade and cheltenham have much more in common with each other than they do with their own governments is almost
0: it's been a fascinating discussion John I really want to say thanks for for coming on to the podcast um, the, the book has been fascinating to, for me to read through and you know I've learned a lot from from this and it, it was interesting for me picking out not just the, the elements of history or the, the uh, what's what's probably a little bit more in the public eye in terms of the types of threats that GCHQ has dealt with but the things behind the scenes you know that we talked about how, they, how they've adapted to the information age how they've um, gone through that organisational transformation but also the importance of Open source intelligence, open source information throughout its history, actually, not just recently, but going back, you know, much further to the early years of, of SIGINT for, it, for the uh, UK. So yeah, thanks so much for that. Okay, Great, thanks care. very much. All right, thank you, John.